Welcome those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. It's our desire to exalt and to proclaim Christ as we've done just in this singing, joyfully just lifting up our praises to the one who came for us, who died for us. And he died for all who would come to him and bow down to him and ask of him that which he wants to freely give to you. Pardon, forgiveness, eternal life. Do you have this Savior who gives these to you? If you have him, you have life. Without the Son, there is no life. And so we rejoice in the life that he has given us. And we rejoice that we can come together as a people and encourage one another and sing together as one people before this great and glorious God. So now we open up his word together to hear from him, not from a man, but from your Savior. And he speaks to us through his word. So would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read together verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Follow along with me, please. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he's accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Well, this past June was the 78th anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of Normandy. Its code name was Operation Overlord. Uh, You might know it better simply as D-Day. It was early in the morning on June 6, 1944, under the command of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, that some 156,000 Allied troops from America, Britain, and Canada, they stormed five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of French coast in the region of Normandy, France. And in the hours prior, thousands of paratroopers were dropped behind enemy lines. Uh, they They did so to secure bridges and exits from the beach. And this included the 101st Airborne, whose exploits were depicted in the miniseries Band of Brothers, if you've seen that. Now, German forces believed that the attack would be coming to a different location. And that confusion led to delays in counterattacks. And so as a result, five days later, June 11th, 
the Allied forces had fully secured the beaches and 326,000 troops, along with vehicles and equipment, was landed then in Normandy. So the battle that begun had begun on June 6th. It ended in August when the Allied troops reached the Seine River and effectively liberated Paris and then northwestern France from the control of Nazi Germany. But most, most historians agree that June 6th, D-Day, was not just the beginning of the Battle of Normandy, but more so it was the beginning of the end of World War II. Because of the success of D-Day, the Allied troops could now begin a slow but determined march all the way into Berlin. Eleven months after D-Day, in May of 1945, Germany surrendered. Now, in the same way that D-Day was the beginning of the end of World War II, the resurrection of Christ was the beginning of the end of death, the final enemy. Christ's resurrection from the dead meant that the death of death was inescapable. It was just a matter of time. Death had reigned ever since Adam's sin when all of the human race was plunged now into sin. All men died because of sin and all men remained dead. Death held people in, in its fearful clutches. And as long as people die, right up until today, God's own sovereign purposes for life, for Him giving life, His purposes for life, they have not yet been fully realized. You see, all of that change, that fateful morning when God raised Christ from the dead. From the, the moment Christ's heart beat again, death was dethroned. See, through the resurrection of Christ, God dealt death a fatal blow. He proved that death could not hold on to a man. The man, Christ Jesus. But Christ was only the first fruit of what in time would become a veritable harvest of those who would rise from the dead. Death could not hold on to those who do not belong to it because they belong to Christ. And so in the previous verses to our text this morning, Paul there, he attempted to show how irresponsible those Corinthians were in arguing that there is no resurrection of the dead. He did this by showing how it would play out, right? If, if such a thing were true, that there is no resurrection of the dead, well, then neither Christ is raised and our faith and our hope are futile. Right? The gospel, 
not good news at all. It should be rejected for a hoax. All Christians should renounce their faith because it's baseless. If Christ is not raised, the very foundation of the church, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets should be removed because they're a bunch of liars who claim God raised Christ from the dead when in fact he did not. All the benefits of Christ's death, right? His pardon that we receive. Inheritance. Redemption. Justification. All that must be resigned. We're still in our sins if Christ is still in the grave. The dead in Christ, they should be regretted because they have, they have all perished. And, and that hope of a, of a, of a better life to come, that hope that has carried thousands through persecution and affliction and hardship, maybe that's what's carrying you. That hope should not be cherished. That hope should be resented. It, it has proven all who hold to this hope to be nothing more than pathetic liars, believers of lies. We believe the lie and then we spread the lie even further by telling other people about it. And that's pathetic. We're fools. See, that's how it would be if Christ had not been raised. Look at verse 20. But now, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, all of those potential, those... those uh, Things that we should not do were all hypothetical. And so Paul now turns to demonstrate that Christ's resurrection, which the Corinthians believed, they did believe it truly happened. Christ's resurrection happened. But what Paul is now going to show is that Christ's resurrection has made the resurrection of the dead both necessary and inevitable. So this morning, we have the joy of hearing about God's absolute supremacy in Christ's resurrection. God's absolute supremacy in Christ's resurrection. That's the title of this morning's message. And so from verses 20 to 28, I hope to show you that the dead will rise and death will be defeated because... God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. The dead will rise and death will be defeated because God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. We'll see this first as we look at Christ and how he is sovereign over life. Christ is sovereign over life. All in Christ must be raised because Christ was raised and all in Christ will be raised when Christ returns. And then we'll see that God is supreme over all. Because he fully destroys all his opposition. He finally defeats death itself. And then Christ will freely deliver over the kingdom to him. What a glorious text that we have to focus on this morning. So let's ask God to use this text to greatly encourage us to strengthen our faith and our desire to live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Uh, You are good and you are great. Nothing is too difficult for you. Through you, Christ was raised and even death, our greatest fear, our most formidable foe is defeated. And we know that if you should not send Christ back in our lifetime, that everyone in this room will face death. While the most, while the thought of dying, that still makes us anxious. We, we don't need to fear what comes after our heart stops beating. All who die in Christ will be with Christ. So encourage your people, please, with this glorious truth. And for those who are right now separate from Christ, Lord, may you only increase their fear of death their fear of judgment that awaits them so that today they might run to Christ, the refuge, the place of pardon where He offers it to us freely. And we ask this in Christ's name for His glory. Amen. So the first thing for us to see here is that Christ is sovereign over life. Christ calls Himself the resurrection and the life. He says that to say, I am the source of of both resurrection and life. He gives to all life and resurrection to all who believe in Him. But but how can life be given freely to those who are sinners and deserving, therefore, of death? They've transgressed God's law. They are deserving of death. So how can Christ give life to them? Well, it's because all those who have believed on Christ are now seen as God in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is very significant in the New Testament Scriptures. Paul mentions, he says this, look in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So, We're going to talk about this verse in just a a second here, but but let's pause for a moment because I I want to make sure that you understand that when you see this this little phrase, in Christ, which could also be used as, you know, with pronouns like in him or in whom, all of which those pronouns are referring to Christ, it's speaking there of your union with Christ. Right? We we refer to a marriage as a union. Why? Because two people who are joined together in marriage are seen in the eyes of the law as one, right? Even though there's much damage seeking to be done to the notion of what marriage is in our country, throughout the world, this is still how it is viewed. When you are married, when a man and a woman are married, you are seen in terms of the, of, of the, in the eyes of the law as one, one in terms of your possessions. One in terms of your finances. One in terms of your children, right? If one spouse gets rich, well, so does the other. Right? If, if you buy a house, well, then you both own it. Whatever debts, though, your spouse may have had when you were married, well, now both of you own those debts. Now, in the same way, because we are united to Christ, we are in united to Him, we are in union with Him, we are in Christ, in Him, well then all that is Christ has accomplished, we benefit from. That's why it's such a key phrase. 
Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Turn ahead to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 4 and 5, or 5 and 6. He says, starting in verse 4, But God, Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So because Christ is alive and because we are united to Christ by faith, well, God says here he makes us alive together with Christ. So this verse here in Ephesians 2, written also by Paul, right? it fits very well within what we're talking about in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So our union with Christ, who is sovereign over life, is the reason why we also will live. So this understanding of our union with Christ, it's it's helpful with the two points then that Paul makes about Christ being sovereign over life. First, all in Christ will be raised because Christ was raised. That's the first point. The second point is all in Christ will be raised when Christ returns. Okay? So first, let's look here. He says that all in Christ must, that's a key word, must, it can't be a hoped for thing. It's an inevitable thing as we're going to see. So the, the word is must. All in Christ must be raised. Why? Because Christ was raised. That's why. Let's see why. how we can conclude this. Well, remember, Paul's concern is to demonstrate not only that the resurrection of Christ stands you know, logically against the view these, some of these Corinthians had that there was no resurrection of the dead. That's his concern, yes. But his concern was also that inherent in Christ's resurrection, there's a guarantee here. And that is a, there's a guarantee here of our own resurrection. And he... He does this, that he gives us this guarantee by what he calls Christ. Look, look there in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He calls him this name, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So this term, first fruits, you can probably figure out what he's getting at. But let's just take a moment so that we make sure we're all on the same page here. Now, it is a term that most Jews would have been familiar with, who were familiar with their Old Testament. God told Israel back in Leviticus 23, he said, when you enter the land, which I'm going to give to you, and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Okay, so you've got... This big harvest, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you, the very first of that harvest, I want you to bring it to the priest as an offering. See, so you were, he was telling the people of Israel, I want you to consecrate the first fruits, the first sheaf. I want you to set it aside. The first fruits of the harvest go to God. Why? 
because it's an expression of your gratitude for for the harvest itself, but also it's an expression of your trust in God. I don't need to keep it all to myself. The God who provides for me, I can offer it to Him to show my trust in Him. I honor Him with this offering of the first fruits. Do you know this is the concept behind your giving? I've had people ask, you know, I notice you don't pass a plate. No, we don't pass a plate. We don't think it's either more holy or not holy to pass a plate or whatever. It's fine if you... People want to pass plates in a church. What we have is an offering box back there. That's where you offer the first fruits of all your produce. Do not stuff any grain in that box. Now, I know none of you are farmers, so I don't have to worry about that. But he says in Proverbs 3.9, he says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. See, God is our provider. God is our security, not money. How do you show your honor to Him? How do, you, how do you demonstrate that I really do trust you? All those songs I sing about trusting you, let me give you, uh, give you a very practical way that you can show that you trust the Lord. You give to Him from all that He gives to you. In other words, you don't just give from what's left over, Right? After you pay the bills, after you pay the mortgage, after you pay the taxes, after you buy the groceries, after you go get the boba, right? And then whatever's left over, well, a portion of that goes to God. No. God will make sure that you have all that you need. So you give from the first. You don't give from the net. You give from the gross. That's the practical application of this. You give to God from the first fruits of all your harvest. Not just the leftovers. And in this way, you honor God. You honor Him as the one who faithfully provides for you. That's why finances, when it comes to your walk with God, are one of the clearest ways that you demonstrate that you trust God. You want to know blessing in your life? And give to Him from the first of your produce. I'm not saying it one leads to the other. I'm saying give to Him in such a way that shows that He is your provider. He is your security. Now, that being said, Paul, with, with this understanding of the, 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 the Jewish mindset of what a first fruits is, Paul's not really speaking about the first fruits here in the sense of this offering idea. He's using the idea of first fruits in a different way here. Still tied to the harvest, but it's not about an offering. He uses first fruits to emphasize the link between the first fruits of the harvest and then the whole harvest that's represented by that first fruit. Catch what I'm saying? If you go to, if, if the field represents all your harvest and you take the first fruits of it and you offer that to God, Right? What he, Paul is using it as is that first fruit is linked to everything that's in that field. It's representative of everything that is already to be given to you in the whole harvest. This is just the first fruit. So it establishes this link between that which you 
that which is the first and that which everything else that is already to come. It's part of the harvest. It's been used in several ways in this way. In the next chapter, in fact, Paul calls the household of Stephanus, he calls them the first fruits of Achaia. So that he's not saying that they're an offering to God. No, he's saying that they were just the first and representative converts of the region of Achaia. Many came after them. They're just the first fruits. God had a larger harvest that was going to be realized. They were just simply the first ones to come to Christ. And in the same way, so was Christ. He was the first fruits. When it comes to the resurrection, He is God's first fruits. He's, he's God's promise, so to speak. That there's going to be a full harvest of those who will be raised from the dead with Christ. And notice that Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's not the first fruits of the resurrected. What's the significance there? Well, when God raised Christ, He wasn't simply you know, intervening in, in uh, the natural process of being crucified, which leads to death. He wasn't just intervening in that natural process in a miraculous way to rescue Jesus from death. See, that is too small a view of what, of what he's talking about here. Now, Christ's resurrection was, was way more significant than just a miraculous rescue from the natural process of death. See, Christ was the beginning of something far greater. He was the beginning of God's renewal of all things. All things. He's the first of all else that must follow. As the first fruits, Christ's resurrection is God's pledge of the full harvest of resurrection to come. The resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of all those who are in Christ, they are integrally related. Christ's Resurrection is like act one of a play. Act two of the play is all of us being resurrected who are in Christ. They are two parts of a whole. Who goes to see just act one of a play? Right? How, how utterly unsatisfying that would be to see part one and never know what happens next. You... You get one with the other when it comes to Christ. Because Christ was raised, you will be raised. They both go together. They're two parts of the whole. Paul is saying that because Christ was raised, all in Christ must be raised. Why? Because they're in Him. Our resurrection as believers in Christ is absolutely inevitable. It has been guaranteed by the eternal and living God who in Christ's life, death, and resurrection has now set the future in motion by raising Him from the dead. You see that? It will happen. It's inevitable. He's just the first fruits. Stop and take in what Paul is saying here right? in the midst of this argument. Right? This is an argument. He's, he's responding to the Corinthians. He's arguing for the resurrection of the dead. But he's giving us just an epic picture here. All who die in Christ shall rise. We who trust in Christ, we can never be separated from our Savior, nor He from us. 
We are inseparable. In, in arguing for the resurrection, Paul is simply restating what he tells the Romans in chapter 8. The Roman Christians, he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, you can finish it with me, can't you, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people say amen to that. This is, this is what he's saying right here. He's showing us why we can never be separate from Christ. He's just the first fruits of, of the harvest of which we are already a part and must be a part of. But how, how is it that this is true? How do we know that, that Christ's resurrection was not merely some isolated occurrence, but, it was, but really was an event that has consequences for us? How do we know this? Why is it inevitable that we will be raised because Christ was raised? It's because of what Paul compares it to in the next two verses. He compares the resurrection of Christ and our being raised with Him. He compares it to Adam's sin. That might seem a little, a bit of a contrast, but his focus is not really here on Adam's sin. His focus is on how Adam's sin affected all of humankind. Look at verse 21. He says, For since by a man came death, and you could, you could say in parentheses, to all men. Right? For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, there's, there's a lot that Paul has said elsewhere in the New Testament about how Adam's sin brought death. In particular, just turn over to Romans chapter 5. Turn uh, backwards, one book, to Romans chapter 5 and just read with me verse 12. Lem? Lem, could you get me a drink? Rusty's gone. He usually supplies me with water. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through the one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Right? So that's, that's a snapshot. Thank you. A snapshot of what he's getting at here by just this reference. But that's not really his focus. To talk about how death then spread to all of humankind through Adam's sin. His focus here is to show how Adam's sin had a universal effect on all who came after him. That's his point. We go through Romans and preach through Romans. We'll talk more about how that happened. But for here, it's the link of Adam's sin and how it spread to all who came after him. Right? The same relationship, he says, applies to Christ's resurrection. So Paul, he starts out by first pointing out that death came to all men by one man. Death came to all men by one man. By a man came death, in Adam all die. Right? So because of one man's sin, it's inevitable that all men now die physically. Adam stood at the head of the human race. 
as its representative, as our representative, he determines the fate of the whole group. All humanity shares the consequences of his sinful choice. And therefore, death is inevitable because of our sharing in the humanity and the sinfulness of the first man, Adam. Now, in the same way, this is, this is Paul's point here. In the same way that death came to all men by one man, then he says, life came to all believers by one man. Life came to all believers by one man. He says, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So Christ, as Adam stood at the head of humanity, Christ now stands at the head of a new humanity as its representative. Whatever happens to Christ happens to all those who are in Christ. And so we're not talking about all men here. I know it can sound that way just by what we're saying. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But, but the context shows he's not talking about all men who have ever lived. Right? He's talking about verse 18, for example. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's the context of who this all all who have fallen asleep in Christ is what he's saying. So because he was because Christ was physically raised from the dead, it is inevitable that believers in Christ will be raised also physically from the grave. Death's power is is broken for those who are in Christ. He says in Christ all will be made alive. Right? So the verb that Paul uses here it implies the idea of a new creation. We will be made alive into something new. Paul is going to talk about this more later in the chapter, about what it is we're going to uh, become like. We're going to become like Christ in how He was raised from the dead. In, in Romans 4.17, Paul uses this same word to describe God. It's like giving Him a title. I love how the NIV does this. It turns it into like a title of God. The God who gives life to the dead. Our life-giving God will give life to all who put their trust in Him. He will call us to life from death. He will then fit us to be with Him forever. Now notice that Paul is careful in these verses to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Never diminish the humanity of Jesus. He says, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. So you can't say that Jesus was some divine being who was not really touched by death. In other words, he was not really a man. Nor can you say that because Jesus was God, that it was a resurrection of some other kind, unlike what, what will happen to us. No, Christ's death was the death of a man. And his resurrection was the resurrection of a man. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. He says, Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, right? 
We're humans. That's what he's talking about here. He himself likewise also partook of the same. And this, this shows us why Jesus became a man. He took on humanity so that he could truly die. There was, there was, uh, it, there was no other way, but he says here, through death, that what would happen? That he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery, slavery all their lives. So Christ became a man to free you from the power of death. How? By dying in your place. And so Christ is the first fruits. He is God's pledge that all who belong to God will be raised from the dead. This inevitable process of, of death being, of death itself, the inevitable process of death that was begun in Adam, it is now being reversed by the equally inevitable process of making alive all those who are in Christ. And that's why Paul can't simply allow some in the church to say there, there's no resurrection of the dead. Oh, that, oh God will show them in the end. No. You see what's in view here. This is a grand theology that's in view. It's, it, it covers all of time from the beginning back in Genesis all the way to the end when we are raised. You can't just say there's no resurrection of the dead without there being serious implications on the supremacy of God who will conquer all His enemies, death itself included. Why? How do we know this? He raised Christ from the dead. And everybody who is in Christ will be raised as well. If death has a storehouse, it's going to be empty. Death has nothing to hold on to. All in Christ are raised. Now, not only must they be raised, Paul says, secondly, that the resurrection of the dead, it follows a divine order. All in Christ will be raised when Christ returns. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So Paul lays out a sequence for us that, that follows an order is the word that Paul uses. An order. The word for order, it's a noun that refers to something that's placed in a proper order. It's a military term. It was used to describe groups of soldiers in various numbers, like a regiment of troops, so to speak. And so in this sense, you have Christ, the first fruits, right? He says, Christ, first is Christ, the first fruits. He's out front. He's, he's the glorious captain. If we're going to stick with this military terminology, Christ is the glorious captain of our salvation, and he's out front. Look again back at Hebrews, how he paints the picture of Christ being humbled as a man. Turn to, again to chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. He says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's speaking of his incarnation. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with 
glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So Christ here, our glorious leader, he becomes a man. He tastes death for everyone. And in so doing, it says he leads many sons to glory. He, he is the first to rise because he ranks the highest. And then after him comes this army, this army of those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who now assemble at the de- from the dead and they assemble at the sound of the last trumpet. If you're back in chapter 15, look over at verse 52. He says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Look over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Excuse me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says... For listen how Paul describes this scene that he just alluded to in, in chapter 15. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul here is describing what the church is called the rapture. Right When Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised and then those who are alive at His return, they are joined together and they are all with the Lord. The, the living together with those who had died previously in Christ. Skies are going to be full. Full of those who are celebrating, not just at their resurrection, but, the, but even greater, the absolute victory of Christ over the power of death itself. The term that Paul uses here for his return, term perusia, was a formal, it described the formal arrival of a dignitary or a ruler. That's how it was used at this time. Those who were in Corinth would be very familiar with the pomp and the circumstance associated with, with an imperial visit when an emperor or some imperial dignitary would come and, and, and march through the city. They'd honor him like a god. In fact, in, in AD 66, we know that Nero visited Corinth. And we know this because they, they stamped a coin that commemorated this visit. And, they, and, and they're showing him honor and worship. When he's arrived there, and Paul is taking this idea, one that was very understandable to the Roman mind, and he's inserting here this picture of Christ. He's the one who's coming. And he is God. He doesn't pretend to be a God. If you keep your finger, go back to, if you haven't turned away, look at 1 Thessalonians. It's all about the return of Christ. He drives this point home in the letter about the return of Christ. Chapter 2, 
Verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13. He says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body preserve, be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself pictured here? Friend, do you see yourself as one of those who will rejoice at the coming of the Lord? He's the first fruits from the dead, which means there is another resurrection that is coming. And in God's mind, that date is already fixed. All time is marching inevitably towards that date. It will not be delayed. It cannot be postponed. It will not be canceled. It cannot be prevented. Paul is focused here in 1 Corinthians, right, on those who are Christ's at His coming. He said, an hour is coming. Jesus said this. There's more, though, that's happening than just the resurrection of believers. There is another resurrection that Jesus spoke of. He says, an hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs, will hear His voice. They will come forth. Of all those who hear His voice that are dead, that's the idea, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Oh, my friends, are you ready for this day? Christ is coming. You will be raised. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be called forth. But what will you be called to? Will it be a resurrection of life where forever you will be with Christ? Or will it be a resurrection of judgment where forever you will be separated from Christ? And you will be separated not just from Christ, but all that is of Christ. See, hell is a place that is absent of Christ. It's absent, therefore, of all goodness, of all compassion, of all affection, all peace, all joy. And that's why it's described also as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. God reserves the fate, relentless agony for those who would reject the offer of pardon purchased by the shed blood of God's Son that He's offering to us freely. Would you, would you trade eternal despair for the pursuit of pleasures that, that cannot satisfy? Freedom that's really bondage. Sovereignty. I do what I want. It's really slavery. You do what sin tells you to do. That's what you do. Would you really forfeit your soul for such meager gain? few years of vanity or eternity of misery? Death is not the end. 
Now, for all who are apart from Christ, or who, all who are in Christ, it's the beginning of life. Real life. True life. Full life. But for all who die apart from Christ, it's the beginning of death. Just the beginning. Come to Christ. He is the sovereign Lord of life. Receive from Him what He freely offers to you. Forgiveness. Freedom. Joy. Satisfaction. He offers it to you now. And you enjoy it forever. So Paul has established the fact that Christ's resurrection makes absolutely necessary the resurrection of believers from the dead. And this was the issue that that some in the church denied, right? And Paul has... He's successfully refuting it. And he's doing so by linking it to the resurrection of Christ, to the inevitable resurrection of believers from the dead. But Paul is not content to stop here. Because the resurrection of the dead is about more than simply believers, you and I, being raised to life again. Now that is certainly in view. And that that in and of itself is a glorious truth that we hold dear. But there is far, far more in view here in, in there being a resurrection of the dead. He wants the Corinthians to understand something far greater. All who are in Christ will be raised. They must be raised because Christ has already been raised. But believers must be raised and rescued from death's clutches because only then will death, the last enemy, finally be defeated. And through the work of Christ, then God will finally, he says here in the end, in uh, verse uh, 23, no, 24, 25, I lost my place. In verse 28, only then, after he has raised all from the dead, will God then defeat death and He will be, verse 28, all in all. And that is what's Paul, that's what Paul really wants us to see. And we're going to finish looking at this next week when we look at the supremacy, God's supremacy in Christ's resurrection. See, the dead will, will rise. Death will be defeated. Why? Because God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. What glorious truths these are, Father. They help us right where we're at. We may have loved ones who are dying. Or know, of course, loved ones who have died and they have died in Christ. And we long to see them again. Here's the truth that we know it's going to happen. We may be looking at our own death. We might may. There's probably people in this room who don't even know that there's cancer in their bodies. That cancer is going to take their life. This is the hope that can sustain even in the face of death. We know what's on the other side. Life. Because we've trusted the sovereign of life. The king of life. Jesus. And because he was raised, we will be raised. What joy this brings. What peace. This brings to hearts. May we be ministers of this glorious peace. In Jesus' name, amen.